The reading is from Hebrews chapter 7. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by men who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the law was given to the people, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest, like Melchizedek, appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without an oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now there have been many of these priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a holy priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. 
For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. This is God's word. Uh, good evening, let me have my uh, welcome. My name's uh, Matt Fuller. It's lovely to uh, be here with the church family. And if you're visiting as well, you're very, very welcome. And I know that most of you or many will be thinking, oh, it's such a relief. All week long, my life has just been one big Melchizedek. And what I really wanted was a chapter of the Bible all about Melchizedek. Because that's what's going on in my life right now. And I know that Melchizedek is the answer. Well, welcome. (laughs) Because Hebrews 7 is all about Melchizedek. Well, it isn't really. It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think, I hope, I pray, we'll see that it's very, uh, very wonderful. Let's pray as we begin. Father, not all parts of your word are easy to understand. Some are more difficult, more challenging. We have to think a little bit harder. But we know it's here for our good. We know it's here because we need it. So help us understand rightly what's going on in this chapter. And then, even more than that, to relate to you rightly with the wonderful freedom and wholehearted joy that you would desire for those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Be at work by your Spirit amongst us, we pray in his great name. Amen. Well, as Stephen Stephen said then, after a little break, we're back in the book of Hebrews, and uh, if you're joining us, Hebrews is a fairly intense sermon written down as a letter, but a sermon essentially encouraging the people, its original recipients, just to keep going. Keep going. Because life was tough. For them, there's a time of persecution for uh, for the Christians who are receiving the letter. It's very obvious in chapter 10. Uh, they're being persecuted. They're having their possessions uh, confiscated. Some are in prison. And therefore, some are moving away from Christianity to Judaism. Because in first century, Judaism, state religion, protected by Rome. Therefore, what are you? I'm a Christian, right? Well, let's have a look at your house. What are you? I'm a Jew. Fine, fine. That's okay. So it was safe to drift that way. So because of their having a tough time, persecution, some are drifting uh, into Judaism. That may not be the most obvious presenting issue uh, for many here tonight. But the key application, really, or the key point of the book in this big central section, chapters 5 to 10, are all about explaining that Jesus is the great high priest that we need. So actually, if he wanted a summary, perhaps, of, or he gets to the point in chapter 8, verse 1, just after the end of our reading tonight, the point of what we're saying, I had wondered, actually, because all this stuff about Melchizedek was a little obscure to me. Brilliant. Summarize it for me, please, writer. Okay, chapter 8, verse 1. The point of what we're saying is this. We have, we do have such a high priest sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, that is heaven, set up by the Lord not by man. The big idea of the whole letter is, if you're a Christian, you have the priest you need. You need a priest, and you have him in Jesus Christ. Now, that's harder for us to get our head around than some other biblical pictures or metaphors. So, in the book of Romans, or, or the letter of 1 John, Jesus is our advocate, 
or our lawyer. And that's kind of easier, easier for us to get our head around because we get courtrooms, we see them, we may have appeared in one. It's fine, amnesty, don't have to confess. But um, or we get them from TV, or we, may, we get that there's a, there's a defendant and he has a lawyer who's his advocate before the judge. We get that, that makes sense to us. We, but this is a different model, picture, true perspective, that everyone, every human without fail, is defiled, corrupted, impure, and therefore cannot relate to a God who is perfectly pure without a priest to mediate between a perfect God and an impure sinner. And that's just less familiar to us. We don't really have temples and priests and things like that. But that's the model that's being presented here, uh, the truth. And we'll have a little look at that. And before we really get going on the text, three, I just wanted to outline three ways you could go wrong with this just before we really get to it. Just so when we do work our way through, you'll see how it relates to these things. Here are three ways you could go wrong with this idea of needing a priest to get to know God. Here's the first. It's simply this. You deny you need one. Deny you need a priest. And that, I take it, is very common in London as a city. I don't think there's a God, and I don't need anyone to put me right with him. I don't think there's a God. I don't think I'm accountable, so I don't get any of this. I don't need God's approval. What is that? You'd have heard that. You may think that. You'd have said it, perhaps, at times in the past. It is quite hard to consistently live that way. Because if you deny there's a God and you need his approval, you have to seek it elsewhere. That's just who we are as humans. So the, so the school child wants the approval of their teacher. Is my work good, miss? And we grow up a little bit, and we may be a student. Is my essay good? My, do my um, experiment work? Or come out with something credible? And we may grow up a little bit more, and we, whatever our profession is, but the artist needs the approval of someone to buy their work. The musician needs the approval of someone to listen to them sing, perform. The architect needs the approval of someone to say, yes, nice building. The lawyer needs the approval of someone to say, decent piece of work, yes, I'll employ you. you we all need approval. Of course, that's just human nature. But if we deny we need it from a God above, we'll pursue it that much more. Uh, amongst other people, and it becomes much more acute when you know you've done something wrong. Now, you may have a hard conscience or a soft one, but there comes a point where all of us recognize we've done something wrong. And we need to make atonement in some way. And if there isn't a God to forgive us for what we've done. It's quite hard, emotively, emotionally. We'll scratch around in other ways. Let me give you a strong example of this. Um, Ian McEwan is rightly lauded for his book, Atonement, probably his best book, la, la, la. Uh, some of you may have read the book or, or seen the film of, of Atonement. The book is better than the film, it's often the way. Uh, but even, even if you've seen the film, you know, the main character is a, a little girl called Bryony. It starts off, she's 13 years old. Bryony sees her older sister, Cecilia, or C, uh, having sex uh, in the library with Colonel, no, no um, with, um, uh, with Robbie, the gardener. And uh, it's a fairly uh, intimate uh, uh, engagement. And um, 13, Bryony thinks there's something wrong with it. 
perhaps it was rape of some kind. And she's a bit confused about what's taking place. Anyway, a little later on, she sees Robbie again, and she accuses him of raping a cousin, something he hasn't done. But he gets convicted. He goes to prison on her wrong evidence. Her older sister, C, never speaks to her again. A sort of section one. And the rest of the book is Bryony realizing her mistake and trying to make atonement. That's the title of the book. So she gives up her literary career. She, she becomes a nurse. Uh, there's a sort of social concern to care for others. And then you get to sort of the last section-ish of the book. And it turns out she's the novelist who has written this story of what took place. And she tells how, in fact, Robbie and C got back together and how she met them and they forgave her and how it was very wonderful. Then you get to the very end of the book and she says, well, I made all that up because he died in the First World War and she never forgave me and I've never found forgiveness or atonement. And there's a very telling little um, passage very near the end where despairingly she puts it like this. How can a novelist achieve atonement when, with her absolute power of deciding outcomes, she's also God? There's no one, no entity, or higher form that she can appeal to or be reconciled with or that can forgive her. There's nothing outside her. In her imagination, she set the limits and the terms. No atonement for novelists, even if they're atheists. It was always an impossible task. And that was precisely the point the attempt was all. Do you see what she's saying? I need forgiveness. I know I got it so badly wrong. I need forgiveness. But if this is all there is, who forgives me? And I I need a verdict outside of me. I need a verdict outside of this world if I'm going to be forgiven, if I'm going to have atonement, if I'm going to be at peace. And then you finish the book and go, oh, oh. And that's a brilliant book when you finish that way. Um, now, do you see the point here? I'm saying that you can deny you need a priest. But if there is no God, there can be no forgiveness on an ultimate scale. And sometimes that just breaks you because you know you've made a mistake of dramatic proportion. You know you've done something wrong. You know you need forgiveness. And so we we need there to be a God and therefore someone to plead for us. And some recognize that, just emotionally. There's the first mistake. You could deny that you need a priest. The other two, uh, more briefly. The second mistake would be you could rely on a human priest. And uh, many religions or religious systems do this sort of thing. So uh, perhaps most familiar uh, in this country would be uh, formal or orthodox Roman Catholicism. What goes on in practice may vary. But of course in orthodox Roman Catholicism, you need a priest. You cannot be forgiven unless you have a priest who uh, takes bread and wine and performs some magic. We we unfortunately won't do that later. Um, But performs magic over bread and wine. They become literally um, uh, uh, by transubstantiation the body and blood of Jesus Christ and they are re-offered as a sacrifice. You need a priest to make a sacrifice for you in official Roman Catholicism. And of course, what does that do? God is distant. You can't relate to him. You need a human to do that. 
So there's a second mistake, thinking you need some kind of human priest. The third mistake would be you can attempt to be the priest, which is, okay, yes, there's a God, and I need to come before him, but I can do that. That'd be nice. I'm going to see God. Hello, God, here I am. Accept me as I am. But of course, biblically, you can't do that. He is perfect and pure. We are not. We're sinful, defiled. And to bring the two together, that's paper to a naked flame. We can't stand in his presence. Did you, uh, did you hear the, uh, the firework display in Edinburgh this year that went a little awry? Uh, several thousand pounds worth of fireworks, this big display, 25-minute display in uh, central Edinburgh, you know, one of those clever computerized, you know, uh, de- de- determining everything that happens at different times, all uh, very coordinated. Uh, all very coordinated. Anyway, 25-minute displays, thousands and thousands of pounds worth of fireworks, apart from the guy hit the wrong button on the computer. So what should have been a 25-minute display went off in 25 seconds. <laughs> so you can imagine the crowd gather. Oh, it's going to be lovely. Do you, the last year was brilliant, and this year they've spent even more. Oh, it's going to be lovely, isn't it? <gasps> and apparently just the crowd just ran um, because there's a mighty explosion going off. <laughs> you know, 25 seconds. You, know, <laughs> you think you're in for a good time, and it goes terribly wrong. I can't tell you how much more it would be to make that mistake with the living God. Oh, here I am, Lord. You'll accept me, won't I? Won't you? No. No. Sinners can't come into the presence of a perfect, holy God. So there's, there's three mistakes. You can deny you need a priest. You can rely on a human priest. You can pretend to be a priest. Let me just remind you on that last one then. Um, how the Old Testament taught this, some will be familiar or it may be new, but much of the Old Testament and the sacrificial system that is set up there is designed to teach this very simple point. For a perfect God to dwell with sinful people is very hard. The way they did it in the Old Testament was via the tabernacle. Now, uh, bear with me on this because it's really important for the next three chapters, really, of the book. So here is the tabernacle uh, in a sort of cutaway view. And uh, uh, let's work from the outside in. Excuse me, from the inside out. The centre is the Holy of Holies. It's a cube about five metres by five metres, something like that, roughly. Uh, And in there is God's throne. Representatively, God dwells everywhere, but he represents, that is his throne room. So everything there is gold and elaborate and expensive fabrics because it's a throne room. Just outside that, you've got the holy place, which is about uh, uh, double the size, 10 by 5, something roughly like that. Only priests in the Old Testament could go in there. Then outside, you've got the courtyard, and any Israelite could go in there. Don't go in if you're not an Israelite. So it's graded. The, the holy of holies, the holy place, everything gold, it's a palace representing God. Outside is bronze, not quite as serious uh, or as important. The Holy of Holies, the high priest is allowed there one day a year, the Day of Atonement. Because you can't go there. The Holy Place, well, as I say, priests allowed in, courtyard, all sorts of people. Now, if you wanted to come up to the tabernacle, you walk through the entrance, which is at the extreme side there, the, uh, the, the right-hand side as, as we look at it. The first thing you see as you walk in is an altar with animals being sacrificed. The altar is five meters by five meters by three meters high. That's quite big. And there's just animals constantly being sacrificed on this altar. You go into the holy place. Again, there's an altar of incense because you need to sacrifice. 
If you were the high priest, the only way you could go in there was if you offer a sacrifice. The point of all these being, for a sinful person to come before a holy God is death. And God was teaching his people then, the only way you can do it is if an animal dies in your place. This whole system is set up uh, to demonstrate that. Okay, we'll, we'll take that away and uh, come back to it a little bit later on. Later on. Okay, let's get to the text. So you don't want to deny you need a priest. You don't want to rely on a human priest. You don't want to attempt to be a priest because you can't come before a perfect God. Now, the text is, uh, it has sort of complications. I want to punch through verses 11 to 9, excuse me, 1 to 19 very quickly uh, and then dwell the rest of our time on the last nine verses. Okay, so two quick things. Verses 1 to 10, the simple point, I don't know if you followed it at all, but the simple point is Melchizedek is greater than the Old Testament priests. Okay, let's try and uh, keep it very simple. It's not a very pressing issue for many of us, but we need to remember in the context, some were drifting back to an Old Testament system of priests. And the writer says, don't do that. You don't want to do that. And let me demonstrate theologically why you don't want to do that. Now, Melchizedek is a man who appears uh, in Genesis chapter 14. Essentially, the argument of uh, this little section goes a bit like this. The Levitical priesthood, they're good, aren't they? But we all know Abraham is better. So we have that. Okay, there's a hierarchy going, okay. There's Levi, but we know that Abraham is better. Great. Um, Because everyone recognizes that. Father Abraham, the father of the nations, he is the great one. And he's greater than Levi. Are we all agreed, uh, readers? Yes, we are all agreed. Now, do you remember in Genesis 14, Melchizedek, bing, is greater than Abraham. Because Abraham gave him an offering. And Melchizedek blessed him. Oh, if you follow that logic. And he then goes on to say, Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. That's all that section means. Don't go back to Levi because Abraham's greater, Melchizedek is greater, and Jesus is greatest of all. That's his simple point. Okay? Verses 1 to 10. Verses 11 to 19, slightly different point. The Old Testament priests couldn't bring perfection. That's the issue, verse 11. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, dot, 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 why was there any need for another priest to come? Verse 19, the law made nothing perfect. The whole Old Testament system perfected no one, says the writer. Perfect, according to verse 20, excuse me, verse 19, that is being able to draw near to God. Not sinless, but just viewed as perfect in God's sight. And the Old Testament system, the priestly sacrificial system of the Old Testament, never enabled people to draw near with that sort of confidence. This offering bulls and goats and rams and sacrifices, that never allowed them to draw near with confidence. It was only ever by faith in what was to come. And so, he says, verse 19. Well, let me read from verse 18. The former regulation set aside because it was weak and useless. The law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Let's spend the rest of our time on that. The essential section, the, the, the point of the chapter is Jesus is better because he's a priest who lives forever. Don't turn from him. Briefly then, three ways 
that Jesus is better than any other, certainly the Old Testament system, than any other religious system. Let's just go through these three. First then, he's appointed forever by an oath. Verses 20 to 22. He was not without an oath. Others become priests without an oath. But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, Psalm 110 verse 4, the Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Now, Old Testament priests are appointed because of their dads. It's like a monarchy. You're the king. I'm your son. I get to be king. Hurrah. In the Old Testament, you're a priest. I'm your son. I get to be a priest. And that's how they're appointed. By, by contrast, Jesus was appointed by an oath. Okay. Biblically, God makes promises and he makes oaths. What's the difference? The difference is slightly this, I think, in Genesis. For example, God makes Abraham a promise in Genesis 12. From you, nations will will grow. Genesis 22, he makes him an oath, which is he provides a ram as an offering God's promises, of course you trust them. They will always come true. When biblically God makes an oath, that is for our benefit. It is as if God gets out his yellow highlighter pen and says, don't forget this. I'm calling this an oath. When he makes an oath, it's as if the living God grabs you and me by the shoulders and says, look at me. I am swearing this to you. Do you understand? I'm slowing down so you get it, is the point. So it's a point of emphasis here. I guess in one sense we get this in a human sense. Um, hopefully most of us are honest. Hopefully, I mean, we, we all tell lies. And it may, it may, people you meet in the street, they'll tell lies. But you have to relate to people in the UK or on, the, on the basis that generally they're telling the truth. And you expect that, although people bend it, etc., etc. When someone goes into a courtroom and swears solemnly to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That oath has upped the ante, hasn't it? What's happened there? The oath is, it's a reminder to the person speaking, Ola, this really matters. And we're making you swear an oath so you get it. Yeah, okay, I get it, I get it, this is really serious. Again, there's this sense here, when God is making an oath, it is for our benefit. So we hear him saying, You really, really, really can trust me. Of course you can trust anything I say. But I'm wanting to to underline this. Get my yellow highlighter out so you don't forget it. Jesus is appointed forever. And verse 22, because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Actually, it's slightly wrong. in the It's guarantor. He's the one that guarantees it. He guarantees our salvation. Get to covenant next week. But think of it this way, if you had to take out a loan for, I don't know, for a student loan or a car or a house, it's a mortgage, whatever it is, you take out a loan, and it's a big sum of money, say it's a mortgage for a house, and it's, I don't know, it's a big mortgage, 500,000 pounds, and uh, you take that out and think, golly, that's a big amount of money, uh, and you sign it, but you have a co-signatory. Happily, your co-signatory, for some bizarre reason, is Bill Gates, who says, yeah, you know, I'm underwriting this. This will definitely get paid. And I'm worth $67 billion, so I'm good for it. And uh, the bank says, ooh, lovely. And uh, you think to yourself, phew, I don't need to stress. 
I'll never default on this loan. My guarantor is a really good one. And even as he signs, next to Bill Gates is Carlos Slim, who says, and I am the richest man in the world. I am worth 73 billion, Bill. And, um, and I'm just going to stand next to him and say, I'm going to sign it as well. I underwrite Bill Gates just to make sure that nothing goes wrong. So what you have there is you have a wonderful guarantor and someone making an oath next to him. You're gonna, you're, that loan is fine. You don't worry about it. That's the picture here. The writer is saying, your salvation is secure because Jesus Christ says, I'm the guarantor of it. And standing next to him is God the Father saying, and I've sworn an oath that he's good for it. You're fine. Why would you go anywhere else? You can trust him. Jesus is better. He's appointed forever by an oath. Now, how much better that is than any other religious system you can come across? How can you be certain? I uh, had a funny old conversation with a taxi driver who uh, described himself, I don't know where he was really, but as a Roman Catholic, it was about uh, four weeks ago, and um, uh, I was in a sort of provocative mood with Time to Kill, and uh, said, uh, are you confident you'll be in heaven? He said, no. I don't know. I don't know if I'll be forgiven. I said, I don't think you know Jesus Christ very well. Because if you know him, you know He's forgiven you. He guarantees it. His father has sworn an oath to guarantee it. You're fine if you know him. And uh, he, he said, well, anyway, enough of that, all that nonsense, and um, wanted to move on, so I probably didn't know him very well. But you know, he's knowing Jesus so much better, there's assurance there that you can't get anywhere else. He's appointed by an oath. Secondly, he saves forever as he lives forever, verses 23 to 25. One of the obvious problems with the priests in the Old Testament is verse 23. Now, there have been many of these priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. You know, whatever you think of prime ministers in this country in the past, we've had some good ones, but their time comes to an end, not least because they die. No one, no matter how good they are, lives forever. But by contrast, verse 24, Jesus lives forever. And because of that, he has a permanent priesthood. And therefore, verse 25, he's able to save completely. Completely. I don't know if you ever have any weird thoughts of karma, there'll be payback in the future. No, 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 Jesus has paid completely. Okay, a sort of Roman Catholic idea of purgatory. No, 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 Jesus has paid completely. It's all done. 100%. Don't need to worry. He saves forever because he lives forever. You know, the, uh, in, the high, in the Old Testament, the high priest then, he was allowed into the most holy place once a year. He was dressed a little bit like this. Uh, it's not the clearest. Uh, that's kind of deliberate because no one is precisely sure. So I don't want you to have it. That's what the high priest looked like and very, very clear in your mind because it's a little uncertain what the garments look like. But one thing is clear. He had on him this breastplate, which had 12 precious jewels on the breastplate, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And the point being, when the high priest went into the most holy place and was before the throne of God, he had taken representatively the tribes there. 
So God's people, the Israelites, were there in God's presence. But then, of course, he had to leave, and off he went again. This priest, Jesus Christ, lives forever, and is before the throne of God forever. So don't get carried away, because it would have to be a very, 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 very big breastplate, or very, 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 very fine computerized writing. But there is, of course, the sense in which Jesus stands in heaven with a breastplate on, with the name of every Christian on it, and says, I have taken, whoever it is, Fabian, Hannah, Barbara, into the presence of God, and I will be here forever, and therefore this is where they belong, forever. And he'll never die, he'll never leave, he's always there. He's taken you, if you're a Christian, into the presence of God forever. You can't leave if you're holding to him. He's appointed forever by an oath. He saves forever as he lives forever. Last, he is perfect forever as he's pure. Lastly, verse 26. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike us, Jesus is holy, innocent, pure. He has, verse 27, no need to offer sacrifices like Old Testament priests did for himself because he's perfect. He's offered one sacrifice That was him for me, or you. We, imperfect, defiled, unable to come before God. He, holy, blameless, pure. And he's offered his life as a sacrifice for you and for me. Which means whenever it happens this week, uh, this month, that you're just convicted, you've done something wrong, you know you need forgiveness. Or maybe you have a hard conscience and it won't happen this week, this month, but at some point in your life you think, I've really got that wrong. That's when you need to know this and to look up and whatever your thought is, just know verse 25, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. I'm not good enough for God No, but Jesus lives forever to save completely. This time, I think I'm beyond the pale. No, look, Jesus is a priest forever. He'll save you completely. I need something, I need a sign, I need something physical, something tangible just to know. No, you don't. Jesus is your priest forever, and he'll save completely. You don't need anything else. He is all you need. He's there forever. And verse 25 says there's only one thing required of us. We need to come to God through him. It's a present continuous verb. That is, we just continue to come to God through him. The only way to the Father above is to come through Jesus Christ. Ongoing, always. It's the only way. We can't just walk into the presence of the Father. No, we go through Jesus, our priest, always. Now, one final question before we finish. Because it's the one that bugged me, so I'm just going to push it up on you, uh, whether you care or not. Uh, verse 25, when it says that Jesus lives to intercede forever, what is he actually doing? What is Jesus doing when he's interceding? 
Because it can't be that he's making atonement, because we've been told already, right at the beginning of the book, chapter 1, verse 3, that he has made purification for sins and sat down. That work is finished. He's not making atonement, so it can't be that. It's not that Jesus is in heaven begging God the Father. Oh, look, says God the Father. Matt Fuller, once again, on whatever we are today, Sunday, has made a mess and needs forgiveness. And Jesus says, oh, I know, but can you forgive him again? It's not, it's not this sort of ongoing back and forth between them. Jesus' sacrifice has been accepted. His work of atonement is finished. He sat down. My sins, and yours if you're trusting in him, of yesterday, of today, of tomorrow. All paid for. Jesus didn't need to ask anymore. That was done. And yet, we're told, verse 25, our salvation depends upon Jesus interceding still. What is he doing? Do you see my problem? Maybe you don't. It gets clearer when we get work our way through into the succeeding chapters, but let me just say three things you've got to hold together here. One, in the thinking of Hebrews, Hebrews Jesus has to be there in heaven before the throne of God. It's very important that he's there to plead for us. Secondly, it's, it's crucial that he's there on the basis of his death. Because his death has paid for our sins. He has to be there, he has to present his death. And thirdly, he does actually pray. He's praying, if you're a Christian, for you and for me. What is he praying? He's been told earlier in the book, chapter 218, he's praying that we withstand temptation. He's praying in the writer of Hebrews' logic that we get there, that we endure all the way until the end. He's praying for you and me. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that's lovely and true. But Jesus is praying for you and for me. You see, I mean, once you get an example of it in uh, Luke chapter 22, uh, when Jesus is on earth, uh, the disciples are having a row about who's the greatest. A bit embarrassing, isn't it? Uh, are you greater than me? I don't think so. Um, but they're having that row, and uh, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, verse 31 of Luke 22, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Isn't that interesting? I've prayed that your faith may not fail, that you'll keep trusting. And in the logic of Hebrews, that is what he's doing now. For you and for me. Praying that our faith doesn't fail. And because he's there before the throne of God, and because he's there on the basis of his death for sins, his prayer is always answered. Isn't that wonderful to know? He's praying for you and for me. I mean, I get that he might do that on earth. But now Jesus is ascended. He's there in glory. He's got angels adoring him. He's there with the radiance of his Father. And yet still he's working. He condescends to pray for you and for me. And that's what occupies him in heaven. Isn't that extraordinary? So I don't know what your issue is this week, what you're going through. There are a number of things. Temptation to... Corruption at work, to inflated pride, to lust, or sexual misdemeanors, whatever it may be, to anxiety, over family issue, work, lack of work, whatever it may be, 
Jesus is praying for you in your trials. But you'll stand firm. Now, I don't know about you, I find that the most wonderful comfort. Even this week, as you think, I know that Jesus is praying for me. In what for us and our family is a very miserable time in many ways. But Jesus is praying. That's very wonderful. He is the priest who intercedes and prays forever before the throne of God above on the basis of his death. Why would you want anything else other than him? Let's pray together. We do want to pray, Almighty God and our Father, that in a chapter with perhaps unfamiliar language, unfamiliar terms, that we'd understand, if nothing else, that Jesus is the priest we need. He lives forever. He prays for us. His prayer is effective. And all we need to do is just cling to him. Keep coming to him. And even as we do that, it is because he is praying for us. What a wonderful truth. What a complete saviour. Would we trust him? Would we adore him? We ask for the glory of your name. Amen.